other ones are in touch with real people. It's quite remarkable. I mean, the, one of the most remarkable things I thought, showing just how far gone they are in England, was that Cameron, David Cameron, the prime minister, who was putting through a lot of the spending cuts. Now, they found his personal diaries. His personal diaries he was actually complaining to his local council about the decline of services. Hmm. You know, he couldn't believe that his own actions were having the effects that they were. Amazing. There's all these people coming up with this sort of imaginary reality whereby it's just cutting the fat and lazy socialism. You know, all the spending isn't really necessary. And even, you know, the point where he was seeing with his own eyes, you know, his local library closing down and things like that, he couldn't believe it was because of the legislation he just signed in. But then astonishingly, Jeremy Corbyn comes along and gives people a fairly short list of things they might want. It's a pretty long list, actually. The manifesto has not been broadly communicated, especially overseas. They had to communicate it in the UK. Basically, what happened with Corbyn? Okay, Corbyn had represented what was considered the lunatic fringe of the Labour Party. There's a handful of four, five, six people. He didn't even want the job. It's all the other ones had already you know, gone through the motions of, of running for Labour leader. In fact, I know someone was in the room. They kind of went around in a circle, and one of them said, well, I had a heart attack. My doctor says I can't do it. And another one, well, I've already tried three times. I think I've done my part. <laughs> Finally, it got to Corbyn, and he's like, okay, it's my turn. He's the most unlikely leader ever. And then that's what one of the things people love about him is he doesn't want to actually do this. He's doing this because people want him to do it. It's a sense of responsibility rather than agreed for power. You know, he just sort of reminds everyone of their favorite uncle. You know, he's a sort of nice, kind of whimsical, sweet guy. And, but he also is like, great at listening to people. But then he lays it on the line about let the government run the railroads. Yeah, and he says, all right, let's just reverse all this stuff. Nobody wants the railroads in private hands. Privatization of the railroads was a disaster. It's a little like healthcare in America. You know, 65% of Americans want single payer, but no politician is for it. Similarly with the railroads. Everybody mm -hmm. agrees. I mean, most Tory voters want renationalization of the railroads. But he went on, okay, electric power grid, the water, they privatized the post office. But he also said, let's get rid of zero hour contracts. Let's get rid of unpaid internships. We're going to ban that. Let's make tuition free, restore stipends. Let's see if we we can cancel student loans. Hmm. This is a real total reversal of Blairism, of this sort of, which is like Clintonism, this kind of corporate market-driven version of supposedly at somehow left of center politics right. that the Labor Party had previously represented. And then astonishingly, after two terrorist incidents in oh, yeah. Manchester and London during the campaign, he says, by the way, let's get rid of the war on terror. Yes, that was really an interesting step because, once again, it's something that most people actually agree with. It turns out 75% of Britons do recognize that invading Iraq has something to do with why all this is happening. But he actually had the nerve to say it. He's been saying it all his life. People took him seriously as not just saying something for political reasons. That's the other thing people like about him. The fact that he's been in the wilderness so long means that he actually sticks with his principles. And, oh, I should point out that the British press is way worse than the American in terms of this openness about bias. You know, the person basically immediately said when this guy became labor leader, forget it. No, he's way too far out. Someone did a study. There was like basically no positive stories about him. There was only attacks. <laughs> there was no neutral stories. You know, they would always quite twice as many people against him as for him. So what his party knew is like once the election actually starts, so this is why when there was a snap election, they were for it. Once the election actually starts, there's laws saying they have to give them equal time. So for the first 
time, people are going to be exposed to what this guy is actually like. And what he actually is. clearly a nice guy, sincere. You know, Theresa May acted like a robot, just reading off the sound bites they'd written for her during a question. He would engage with people. He's nice. And they had to, like, tell the manifesto. And, of course, that was things that most people agreed with. So it was almost like the bursting of a bubble. Everybody was thinking, I can't vote for this guy because nobody else is going to vote for him. As soon as they realized that wasn't true, it just, you know, it cascaded. Right. But then, David Graeber, and you saw it coming, this so-called, as you said, despair fatigue. Enough of the no future for you. What if we voted common sense? Yes, exactly. And common sense was one of their big slogans, common decency, common sense. But also, it has to do with the British economy. The British economy is essentially, you know, they say it's a financialized economy. It's driven by the city. And to some degree, that means they're this sort of faithful lieutenant to the American empire. But to largely, it's built on a housing bubble. You know, every rich person in the world feels they have to have a house in London. I mean, there's whole districts of London where, like, you know, there's no lights on at night because it's all, like, Russian oligarchs or Chinese billionaires who just don't actually live there. They maybe come once a couple of mention Saudis. Yes, Saudis. Uh, you know, just you name it. Anybody who's rich has to have a place in London. And the question is, why London? Climate kind of bad, right? It rains all the time. It's not that pleasant place. Why not Rio? Why not? You know, there's so many cities they could choose. And the reason why, really, is because it's safe. Essentially, you know, any possibility of a general uprising has been eliminated at least since 1689. You know? <laughs> There's a happy, subservient working class who will give you anything you want. They really know how to be butlers. They really know how to be nannies. You know, you can get the best servants in the world, and there's no danger of any sort of upheaval, which if you come from Bahrain or Hong Kong or, you know, something could go wrong, but nothing's going to go wrong in London. So the way I put it is, you know, the historical defeat and humiliation of the British working classes is now England's export product. That's why the oh. you know the Queen and the nobility is all part of the package. That's what they're selling. All these people want to come to England because that's the land where they really respect their superiors and they can get away with murder and do whatever they like. Mm. As a result, you can see there's this resentment of foreigners, but they can't resent the foreigners they actually want to resent because that's where all the money's coming from. It's easy for demagogues of the right to turn that against other foreigners. So, no more despair. Where are we going? So that's the despair. The question is when of changing that economy to one based on high tech and, and technology. Because, you know, it's one of the most educated countries in the world. It's a place with a long tradition of sort of popular invention. Most inventions in the world in the 19th century were not only from England. They were from, like, you know, rural vicars. And just they really had a tradition of sort of popular science, of popular innovation. And England has never done good for, like, huge corporate complexes and factories. And that's more like an American and German thing. They always went for small-scale cottage industry, like craft-like, even the high-tech stuff. But high-tech is turning that way. So the despair fatigue is largely about, you know, we could make this country into a place like it used to be. I always talk about, like, steampunk. Where did that come from, right? There's a sudden efflorescence of fantasy about Victorian technology. And in a way, it's like the Victorian period is the last period where England seemed like, before everything went wrong with World War One, and, you know, we realized that all this technology was just going to lead to, like, mass carnage and, and destruction. You know, there's this idea of uh, infinite possibility. So I was like, why is it called steampunk? I can see the steam part. But punk, and it's always, like, about no future. Punk is about no future. And, like, they went back to the last moment where there was a future and said, let's just forget everything happened in the 20th century and start over again. And that's kind of what's happening here. Oh. Just ditch it. Okay, 20th century is kind of a scratch. On the other hand, we've got a 
tradition here we can go back to. And that's what Corbyn represents. He's been trying very hard to talk to high-tech industry and say, no, we're not anti-industry. We're for moving back into that sort of thing. 